0: This is Truth with Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching to the book of Esther, and today we'll finish up chapter 3. It's pretty clear to everyone, as a matter of conscience, that anti Semitism isn't a good thing or an acceptable position. Yet anti-Semitism exists. The source of that bitterness and evil is ancient. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And the sponsor of that evil is also ancient. It's Satan himself. What foils every plot and wrecks every attempt to annihilate the Jews is one simple promise. That promise comes from the God of the universe who never lies and never fails to keep his promises. We'll see him at work again today as we listen to the second half of today's message from Pastor Pierre.
1: Let me ask you something. Is it far-fetched to think that the devil would try everything in his power to prevent the Jewish Messiah from being born? Is it too far-fetched to think that? Especially in light of what happened in Genesis 3.15 when God told the serpent, a descendant of the woman will crush you on the head. Referring to the Messiah. Satan has been trying to corrupt humankind in order to get to the Messiah since that day. For example, he attempted some sort of a ancient version of ethnic cleansing in Egypt. You will remember that. Through Pharaoh at the time of the birth of Moses, Exodus 1, verse 15. He tried something similar through Herod. In the days of Christ's infancy, Matthew 2, verse 16. So he's been using government leaders to try to annihilate the Jews or to try to undo God's promise of bringing a Messiah or to fulfill his promises of future glory of Israel. In the days of Esther, it's no different. The enemy of our souls instigated by God's permission, the heart of an antagonist here to annihilate the Jews because of revenge in his heart, in Haman's heart. So instead of just getting at Mordecai, in his mind he's thinking, I'm going to get at Mordecai's people, the entire Jewish race. Not only the people, the Jews who lived in Susa and in in that area, but also the ones who went back to Jerusalem. Many of them remained in Susa, but many of them returned to Jerusalem. Read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and you conclude that. These guys weren't out of danger either. Because it says here in the text, the Jews of the entire empire here. But since we're talking about a personal vendetta here, it's a good time to bring that up. Now, what's God's view of personal vendettas? What's God's view? What does God think about that? When you, when you feel like you have to take revenge, you take, you have to take matters into your own hands. I'm glad you brought that up. Because here's what scripture says. Never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, Romans 12, verse 9. In other words, you don't have to defend yourself because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. If there's any injustice committed against you, guess what? God is in your favor. He may operate in a completely different schedule than what you're expecting, but vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Don't try to take revenge into your own hands. Why? Because we will always try to do two eyes for an eye. We're always going to want to be on top. We're always going to overdo it. Furthermore, how does he expect us to treat our persecutors? Again, I'm glad you asked, because Proverbs 25, 21 answers that question. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. See, that's the level of kindness that God expects you to demonstrate to your persecutor. Now, what does that say about your spouse? What does that say about your brother or sister in Christ? How, how should you treat your brother and sister in Christ? If God even expects you to be kind to your enemy, to people who persecute you, how about people who serve in the same church, people who live in the same house? Jesus elaborates on this and he says, Matthew 5, verse 44, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So church, in light of all of this, let me ask you, how should you interact with people who want to eliminate your freedom of religion? How should you interact with people in power who want to do away with your freedom to worship Christ? The same people who assault your faith and demand that you keep your, quote-unquote, religious ideas inside your church walls. Did you know that this is un-American? to keep your religious ideas inside your church walls. That is not what the Constitution says. But how do you deal with people who insist on that? By taking revenge? No. We don't operate by vindictiveness. The Bible already, we we already read some verses about that. But by love, which doesn't mean silence. It doesn't mean we stay silent. It doesn't mean we take abuse or that we should be treated as uh, doormats. No, no, no. We can say... "...compassionately, lovingly, kindly, and clearly, dear persecutor, you bear the image of the God you hate, and as your fellow image bearer, I love you, and it's because of that love that I must plead with you. Turn from your wickedness, repent of your evil ways, cry out to God in repentance that he might be merciful to you, come to Christ." He will forgive you of your iniquities and give you a new heart. But if you don't, know that you will end up in a place called the lake of fire. I am deeply concerned about you. Now, Haman was not only a persecutor of God's people. He was the second in command in a mighty kingdom, prime minister of Persia. That's a bad combination. Scripture demands this from people in his position. Check this out. Psalm 72, verse 11. This is what God expects from people in the position of Haman. Let all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. So what Haman is doing is, the Bible says, let's all bow down to God. I'm saying, bow down to me. See? He is violating God's rule. So he is placing himself in a position of judgment, of wrath from God, Not necessarily from God's people, but from God. See, the Agagite, under instructions or perhaps permission here from Ahasuerus, attempted to appropriate Godhood. The Bible says, bow down before me. He says, no, 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 bow down before me. He's appropriating the divinity that belongs to God alone. He's trying to. And in the process, he caused others to commit idolatry. Furthermore, instead of using his office to advance or to pursue the cause of righteousness, which is the obligation of every governor, every mayor, every county commissioner, every president, every king, every prime minister, their jobs according to Scripture, and that's the only one that matters, is that they are supposed to advance and pursue the cause of righteousness, not to use their influence for their own advancement. And this is what this guy is doing. It's a divine mandate from Scripture. There's several places where you can go. To look at that, to see what God expects of people in leadership, government leadership, civil leadership, but that's not what this guy is doing. He's using his influence to plot mass murder. In church, we're not different. That's what the abortion industry does. That's what government people who are in power, are. they're using their influence to promote mass murder of infants. See, we're not that different from those barbarians from several years ago. We're just a little more sophisticated. We call it something different. We tack on a positive name to reproductive freedom. No, no, it's murder in the eyes of God. And it's sin. Shouldn't do it. It doesn't even if the government pays for it. But after the irony and the insubordination and the influence, here's a fourth act of this scene, and we'll, we'll conclude with that one. I'm calling this one the impact, verses 7 through 15, the remainder of the chapter here. Now Ahasuerus didn't know this, but this decision, his decision to promote Haman, changed history forever. And again, not because of his political agenda, but by the providence of God. Remember, that's the theme of the entire book, the providence of God who works behind the scenes here. So his decision changed history by the providence of God, which will become clearer to us as the story unfolds and develops. But likewise, I want you to rest assured, church, that every election, every measure that is passed, every congressional act can be compared to a small piece of a puzzle that we can title God's redemptive plan. We understand that? God owns that piece, of, that piece of the puzzle. God owns the puzzle. God owns the table. He owns the room and the players. You see, the Lord sovereignly places each piece of that puzzle where he wills, according to his infinite knowledge and according to Scripture, to the praise of his glory. And because we may not know the result of that piece being placed at that particular place, it doesn't mean it's not a sovereign plan. It just means I don't know what God is doing. It doesn't matter. He doesn't have to explain to me what he's doing. I, again, I, I hate to keep going back to an example, a personal example, but when people kept asking me this, uh, when they saw me, their pastor going through the pain of losing a son, and they kept asking me, what is, what, what, what's God doing? And I kept saying, I don't know. It doesn't matter. God is sustaining us. I don't like it, of course. It will never be the same. After this, there's no doubt about that. There's no expectation in our hearts that we will ever be the same. We are scarred believers, all of us. We have our different emotional and spiritual scars that God uses for his honor, for his glory. But the point is, I don't need to know. I just need to trust him, that he knows what he's doing. Now, let's move from this thought of the macro idea to the micro level I'm talking about this illustration of the puzzle here. Consider this. God has predetermined every millisecond of your life. He stirs the hearts of people in your life, including your own heart, without violating free will to bring about at the proper time the execution of his perfect, good, and righteous plan, which no one can ever derail. That's a lot of information. Let me repeat that. God has predetermined every millisecond of your life. He stirs the heart of people, including yours, without violating free will to bring about at the proper time the execution of His perfect, good, and righteous plan, which no one can ever frustrate or derail. One evidence of that, if you're looking, if you're saying, I don't know about that, pastor, well, one evidence of that is that God writes history before it happens, does He not? He writes history before it happens. Have you ever heard of the book of Revelation? Ever heard of the book of Daniel? We've talked about the book of Revelation already. We'll talk about the book of Daniel one of these days, and we'll see that God writes history before it happens (laughs) because he has already determined how everything is going to be. Now, I want to show you the first wave of this impact here. There are two waves of this impact. The the impact of this catastrophic decision by a government leader who should have known better. The first wave I'm going to call the hellish policy, or a hellish policy, verses 7 through 11. And the second one is a hopeful predicament. So let's talk about the hellish policy first, 7 through 11. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, uh, no relation to the car, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, per, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. Then uh, Haman said to king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all of the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws, so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it's pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadata, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, The silver is yours, and the people are also, to do with them as you please. So the tragedy now struck here. Haman finally convinces Ahasuerus to carry out this evil plan. Now the timing, I want you to know, the timing of this planned genocide is a slap in the face of the Jews. Because the month Adar would have fallen in February and March, you know, in between those two, close to the Passover feast, close enough at least for them to realize, okay, we're celebrating our deliverance from Egypt now, and now our annihilation happens on that month. And by the way, the Pur here is from the word from which we get Purim, the Feast of Purim. We'll get to that when we get to the end of the book. Just keep that in mind. In other words, what Satan is doing here behind the scenes is that through Haman... He thought he could undo God's work. Imagine the devil saying this. Okay, God may have saved the people from Egypt. He may have delivered the Jews from Egypt, but he cannot save them from Persia. Can you think of anything sillier or anything more blasphemous than this? Now, to convince Ahasuerus, the villain here slandered God's people. He told them something that wasn't true. And he called them rebels, basically. And he had Mordecai in mind when he said, well, they don't follow the rules. They don't follow the laws of the land. He's thinking about Mordecai, which, again, is not true because many of them probably bow down before Haman. They, they bow to pressure. But next he appealed to Ahasuerus' fear of another failure. Remember, there is failure after failure in the life of this guy, one of which was not in the book of Esther. where We talked about his failed invasion of the Greek city-states but they were the outside enemies. You see, in the mind of Ahasuerus and Haman and Er and the royal court, the Greeks were the enemies outside, but Haman says there's a threat from the inside, the Jews, and we need to eliminate them. That's his rationale. And by investing a large sum of bounty money, we don't know how much 10 talents of silver is. It just sounds a lot, (laughs) okay? This is bounty money. He, He also appealed to the greed of the monarch here. And the plunder would recover the the amount of money here many times over to feed the the royal bank. So that's that's what he's doing here. Now, those of you who study modern history can already see the similarities with between that story and World War II. Nazi propaganda, you will remember, blamed the Jews for Germany's defeat in World War I. Hitler vowed, therefore, to rid the world of the Jews. There's only one problem. He should have read the book of Aster! He should have known that anyone who attempts such a thing will be defeated. Anyone who plans a holocaust will be defeated. Why try? See, Haman's proposed royal edict, the third so far in the book, called for the extermination of the Jews from the Persian Empire, including, against again, the ones who returned to Jerusalem. Now, if he had been successful, if Haman had been successful, hypothetically he would have caused the extinction of the Jewish race. Again, it cannot happen because God had already promised him way back in Genesis a future, a glorious future. So he would have theoretically nullified God's promises, both about bringing the Messiah and fulfilling the covenant promises with the Jews. Again, not something that could ever happen. Likewise, Satan is behind every attempt to silence the church of Christ. Now, again, people still to this day insist in trying to stop Jesus from building his church. I'm going back to that theme I talked earlier. That is such a foolish thing. He promised to build his church, Matthew 16, verse 18. Nothing will stop him. Most people who try such a thing realize, and and there were French philosophers that tried that in the past century, okay? Many of them realize that that's not going to happen. I'm not going to be able to silence God. I'm not going to be able to keep Jesus from fulfilling His promises. So I might as well try to corrupt Him from the, from within. That's why I'm saying philosophers have done that, because the, the, their next best strategy is injecting heresy into the church, injecting worldliness and carnalities and philosophies which have nothing to do with Scripture. And my friends the one way you can assess a church and realizing that that church has been corrupted is look at what comes from the pulpit. If you're hearing the opinions of a man from the pulpit, run to the doors. Now, if you're hearing the word of God being promised, then find a seat and and make that church your church home. Listen what comes from the pulpits around this nation to determine whether or not people have been successful in corrupting the church. That's a satanic Strategy. There are hints you can look at. If there's a rainbow flag at the door, there's a hint. Now, here's a second wave of the impact of a catastrophical decision by a government leader. Hopeful predicament, and we'll close with that, verses 12 through 15. Then The king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, the governors who were over each province and the princes of each people. Each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder, a copy of the edict to be issued as a law in every province was published to all the people so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out, impelled by the king's command, while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. Now, Haman showed this diabolical plan, this diabolical vengeful plan in the way he wrote this edict. For the king, and we can assume that he was the one who came up with the wording of the edict here. Listen, to destroy, to kill, and annihilate, that, that's literally overkill. You don't have to say that three times, you don't have to say it once. But no, he wants everybody to know leave no prisoners, destroy, kill, and annihilate. See, that's this way, this man's way of trying to get back at Samuel for chopping Agag to pieces generations before this, his way of punishing Mordecai for not worshiping him or Satan's foolish attempt to get back at God for kicking him out of heaven. Imagine receiving a letter with the presidential seal. You open the letter, which to your horror commands the annihilation of your people, followed by the confiscation of your property. Now that happened in in Nazi Germany not too long ago. But like the people of Susa here, you would be terrifyingly confused. But I want you to know something here. God's providence placed the Jews in that situation. You say, come again, pastor? Yes. God's providence placed the Jews of Persia in this predicament, which I'm calling a hopeful predicament, because there is no way for them to conclude there's a human way out of this. You see? God is purposefully allowing them to go through this so that they can conclude only God can save us. There is no human being on this earth who can get us out of this mess. Of course, he will, he will use human beings, as he did. But in other words, the Lord wanted them to look for help from the only source, which the psalmist articulates in Psalm 121, verses 1 through 2. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. So, church, let me ask you this. Personally, now have you ever been in such a situation? Have you personally been in such a situation when you can you conclude that your power to overcome the situation is depleted completely? It may have been a disease, it may have been a loss, it may have been the loss of a career, the loss of health, uh, may have been betrayal by a family member or a business associate, but you come to the realization, Lord. There is no way I can do this on my own. I have no power left in me. No one in, in my field of vision here can come to my rescue but you. That is exactly what the Jews are facing here by divine providence. God does that from time to time. Perhaps you're in such a peril right now. You came to church today and you're thinking, Man, pastor, you've been reading my mail. no. The Word of God is all-sufficient. I want you to know, my friend, that His grace is sufficient because power is perfected in weakness. Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong." 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 through 10. And that's exactly where God wants us to be, in a place where we say, Lord, I am weak, but you are strong, and therefore my only way forward is to walk in your strength. That is exactly where God placed them. This is what I call hopeful predicament. By the way, a feature of the Christian life. Hopeful predicament. If you haven't been in such a place, friend... I got news for you. You will be, because God does that with our lives. But let me give you a word of encouragement. God will rescue you. You just don't know how or when, because he promised to do it. And not only that, it's his nature to do it. He may allow you to go through a little bit more suffering for a little while longer, like Peter says in 1 Peter. And it may be that if your body gives up, You'll make it to glory if you're a believer in Christ. See, His all-sufficient grace will sustain you in times of trouble. That is a promise from the Word of God, and that's what we see God doing in this story here as the scene unfolds before our very eyes. We'll continue to study and see how God does that. But go ahead and read ahead. That's okay. You won't get any extra credit from me. But go ahead and read ahead. God works behind the scenes. When evil people plot the destruction, your demotion, and perhaps even your defamation, God is working behind the scenes in your favor. Now, Satan has been enticing people to do this from the dawn of time. We shouldn't be surprised if deadly persecution comes to our shores here, even in the land of the free. If it happens within our lifetime, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua 24, verse 14. Not only that, but we will continue to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. That's in Hebrews 12. I hope that that is your commitment as well.
0: If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people who just like you, to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.